Look out. Surging up from the depths of the sea. Horrifying, mysterious creatures whose attack on people sends the whole countryside on an endless search. Unless something is done and done quickly. Is this the end of our civilization? You'll pioneer with us the perilous descent into the unknown. What does that mean? What are you even talking about? A deep, penetrating dive. In the last calm and reflective moment before the monsters came. Humanoids from the deep dive. Welcome to the podcast Humanoids from the Deep Dive, where we dig deep into the meanings and context of your favorite monsters and monster movies. Each episode, we'll see guest co-hosts and myself give our take on an important movie monster and or film, and what we think it means using everything from history and philosophy to films and folklore. Today, we are discussing uh, one of the our personal favorite entities from jewish folklore and and uh and tradition uh the golem and fans of our show can find us on spotify itunes google podcasts wherever your uh, podcasts are served you can find us and we hope you do uh also follow us on twitter at hft deep dive i'm your host jeff ewing i am a film critic and contributor and writer on everything film for for slash film for forbes and read a whole bunch of stuff on all sorts of monsters and and books and articles and if it's monsters i'm obsessed with it and uh you've probably seen my stuff somewhere i'm very very pleased to introduce our excellent co-host for today's episode uh we have andre couture who just a moment ago was convincingly portraying a golem and I kind of think he's made of clay now. Andre, thank you for, for stopping by today. Of course. This is my human voice now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Y'all at home get the human voice. You're very lucky. Uh, we don't yeah. know what voice we're going to get. I, I, I just had to put my shem back in. There you, that's, <laughs> that's what did it. <clears throat> I was clearing, clearing my throat there. Thank you for the clarity. Uh, and then also we have Mike Vaughn. Mike, uh, thank you once again for, for stopping by. Uh, what's today. up? What's up? <laughs> <laughs> and that's our show. <laughs> we can't Woo! talk that. Anyway, uh, yeah. yeah um, I'm, I'm so happy you all could could join us. You know, it's interesting because the... Uh, okay, so golems, uh, in terms of folklore, are both extremely cool and interesting but also um, there's a series of German expressionist films about golems that are some of the first feature length horror films ever and uh, are also, I believe the, the first feature length monster movies of all time. Yeah. This, uh, as far as what the movie for the 1920, uh, movie, uh, and the commentary from Tim Lucas, they go into more detail about how, um, this was so influential with later monster movies. Like, uh, we'll, we'll talk more about it, but I mean, especially like Frankenstein, um, from 1931. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's so, so, uh, the kind of sad thing is, so the 1920s, uh, golem film, is excellent for the record but it's actually the third film in a trilogy of films and the first two are uh supposed to be there's a there's a little ambiguity over but they're supposed to be lost silent films Um, yeah i believe there's like maybe some stills from the one film if i'm remembering that correctly um yeah i think there's like four minutes of 
like footage but then everything else is stills that still remain from uh from the film cells themselves yeah and so there's the uh the 1950 film the golem and then uh also lost is 1917's the golem and the dancing girl which is uh one of the first horror if not the first horror comedy uh ever mm. and then um also reportedly lost but the the one that we still have and has been brilliantly restored is uh its english translation is the golem how he came into the world yeah it's interesting because i mean we we all on the show love german expressionism because the visuals are so cool and you have you know you have nosferatu you have this you have well there's like like uh like faust which is another really good one yeah Um, or you had like yeah faust is awesome it was a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, which also had a like a 1908 film, mm, mm-hmm. it, like in terms of man-made monsters, you know, like uh, in terms of Golem, Frankenstein, uh, creatures mm-hmm. that like science or faith also animate on some level. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, like German expressionist style was so influential in the development of what we know to be the, the horror genre and, you know... Uh, for for some of these earlier ones, the production design, the thought that goes into it is pretty incredible. Yeah, and, and what's I mean something that we'll we'll actually like talk about more when we talk about the movie version is the cinematographer that actually ended up immigrating to the U.S. and making some of the most shooting some of the most influential horror films, um, and bringing with him that kind of German expressionistic motif um mm-hmm. springboarding off that uh, the visuals uh so this was shot by carl freund and he might not be instant uh instantly recognizable to people but he films things like metropolis and later um key largo and dracula for todd browning he actually ended mm-hmm. up directing um 1932's the mummy and he mm-hmm. directed um he only directed a few movies and one his last movie actually was 1935's mad love which i think is one of my favorite 30s era films uh full stop in any genre oh yeah i remember when you got to review that one yeah yeah i obviously really love that movie i think it's so um so weird it's so perverse uh it's has a lot of stuff that is incredibly amazing that it got past the haze code uh which was very newly formed when that uh was released like it has this opening shot of peter laurie's laurie's character and uh he's watching this um show where this actress is being tortured and they have this like close-up of his face and it's like pure ecstasy on his face of like watching this woman being tortured and this was 1935, you know? But there's a lot of, like, movies that came out right around the time that the Hays Code dropped that I think maybe, and I'm not sure if this is true, but, like, maybe they were able to release it just by saying, oh, we had no idea what the Hays Code was going to include. Oh, uh, like they just squeaked, squeaked by? Yeah. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, because a lot of those, like, pre-code films, they were really pushing boundaries, and in yeah. some cases doing things that even by like modern standards 
would be a little controversial. Oh, like like Sign of the Cross. I don't know if you all have seen that one, but it's a movie that's so audacious. It, it, it seemed like it was trying to push every button, like every taboo. Um, there's actually some nudity even, which is kind of funny to think about it, like an early like Hollywood film. But Freud had such an interesting um, career. Again, he was somebody that had worked in German cinema. He kind of helped craft this expressionistic style and then he came over to the u.s and he has such an interesting career he shot a lot of really uh great films uh like i said key largo was like a notable one uh he did mm-hmm. a lot of stuff for james whale and of course dracula is probably what he's best remembered for but then interestingly he pivoted towards tv in later in his career and he shot all 152 episodes of i love lucy oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So like it, it, it's interesting because he uh, he might not be a hundred percent a well-known name, but he was incredibly influential in multiple genres. Oh yeah, I mean he. I mean if you just look up his IMBD, like his first four movies, like is The Mummy, Key Largo, Metropolis, and The Good Earth. So that's kind of all you need to know. Like those mm-hmm. are not only great films, but they're like iconic um, in their own way. So I mean you can definitely see his his style um that he brought over to the u.s again like something like key largo is something that he brought like to the noir uh genre which heavily drew from german expressionism yeah yeah yeah, it's uh, key largo is great so so it's interesting the 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 golem so you you have a bit of a sense of the history um it was very influential and i'm glad it's surviving it's based off of one of the most we'll we'll get into this in a second but it's based off of one of the most well-known stories of of golems but it's it's certainly not the only one so the the story for the 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 1920s film is takes place in 16th century prague uh rabbi low he interprets this alignment of stars as a sign that a disaster is going to befall the the city's jewish community and the following day the local emperor bans his people from prague so to protect them he creates a statue out of clay uh, known as the golem and animates it by um by basically shoving like binding an evil spirit like one of the kings of hell astaroth to it to animate it and at first the creature is very um subservient but then uh something goes awry and it starts to rampage so that's for now, I think enough of a setup to kind of get into it. Have, have both of you had a chance to, to see this? I know, Mike, you did, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, Kino Classics has an excellent Blu-ray that has been restored beautifully. And mm-hmm. I was actually, to prepare for this, I was uh, re-watching it with um, Tim Lucas's commentary track. Yeah, I watched it from uh, that same transfer uh, through uh, Canopy streaming service. So Beautiful. they have the, the full HD uh, transfer from Kino. Yeah, they're great. Canopy's great. The uh, the film itself is really interestingly light, yet it, it passes through each... Uh, there are like five chapters in the film. Um, mm. It passes through each chapter pretty quickly. It has an interestingly brisk pace that, strangely enough, reminded me of uh, the Marvel movie formula, uh, <laughs> where th- they could have actually drew inspiration on, on this specific film, at least because 
it's an origin story and it has the same trajectory of the creation of the hero the triumphs of the hero and then the downfall and then some sort of setup for what might come next for them mm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, not to like immediately compare this to a Marvel movie, but uh, the story is illustrated in this is um, the themes are heavy, yet the the film has like a, a nice air of uh, humorousness to it. Yeah, yeah, I love it. It's not too serious, although like the the horror scenes visually really land for, for yeah. me. Um, I mean, it's interesting that you compare it to a superhero movie because that's um, something that... Um, actually has been sort of uh, seen as an inspiration for superman um yeah jerry i can definitely see that yeah like lucas even points out in his commentary track that the golem is presented in a superhero way you know he's got the emblem on his chest um not unlike superman uh it's worth noting that both the creators of superman were of the jewish faith jerry siegel and joel yeah. schuster so it's that's not a stretch at all i mean it's it's at first it kind of sounds ridiculous to compare it to a marvel movie but then you know there is a lot to that actually there's a really interesting piece on the smithsonian uh website about the golem and um, Superman. I'm sure that everyone's kind of kind of say this, but it's a fantastic movie. It is inc- incredibly well directed, well shot. Um, the sets are so mind blowing, especially for the time. Mm-hmm. They kind of have this sort of fairy tale um, aesthetic, uh, which is not unlike um, the Cabinet of Doctor Caligari, where it's it has this kind of sort of um, DIY kind of homemade feel but then that kind of lends itself to as I say sort of like a otherworldly fairy tale kind of um, feel and that's actually pretty apt I think for this sort of uh, story that's you know based in mythology like a rich history and and having that kind of feel I, I, I think is it really works for the film so yeah it's uh, it's not a very long film um as you know jeff you were pointing out that unfortunately it's one of the few early gala movies that have survived so yeah uh we'll get into it more but it's also really um influential on a later um horror and monster movies um most notably james wells uh frankenstein um there's actually a really kind of cool um bela lugosi as um frankenstein's monster sort of golem tie-in that i i'll mention later but mm-hmm. um yeah it, so it's um certainly very influential and great i would say five out of five absolutely look forward to talking about some of those points to you um also fun fact it is indirectly responsible for the rocky horror picture show mm. because in just seven days i can make you a man <laughs> in the roundabout sense that it kind of inspired Frankenstein which kind of inspired that but technically and his name is Rocky so, uh, yeah. Rocky <laughs> um, you'll learn so many things that you shouldn't probably repeat confidently at parties because I just made them up <laughs> uh, uh, listen my... as I always say if you state it with enough confidence I mean it doesn't matter if it's true right that's why they call con artists con artists. They're confidence artists. Because, mm-hmm. oh, they look like they know what they're doing. Why wouldn't that be correct? I mean, 
I feel like everybody's faking it till they make it. <laughs> Absolutely right. History's written by the winners, and the winners in this case are whoever convinces. <laughs> like even people, even people that are like doing their field, whatever that is, it's like nobody even knows what they're doing. It's all just faking it. <laughs> That's mostly true, except for me. I actually know what I'm doing at all times. Um, <laughs> Andre, would you like to give a review? Yeah, uh, mine's not going to be too different from Mike's, but uh, just going through the. Uh, expressionist look of it is my reading of it is, is pretty similar where um each one of the sets uh and like camera shots are they look so well crafted maybe for me it's it's a combination of um like a german expressionist work like caligari and maybe little flashes of uh of like melier like somewhere mm-hmm. in there especially mm-hmm. with the scene where they, the Rabbi Lowe creates a, a circle of fire, literal fire, to summon Astaroth to coax the, the word of life from him, which he is the only possessor of, so that they can bring this golem to life. And that whole sequence has its own light humor, where the Rabbi's in the circle, he's ready to do this thing, and then he realizes that his, his assistant is outside the circle just watching, and he just pulls him through so he won't be like taken hostage or you know something dangerous could happen Mm -hmm. just has no idea what's going on he's got like this stupefied look on his face just as a highlight that popped out to me the way that it it goes through the like the origin and shows how the golem can be used as a protective defensive force versus how easily it can be used as a tool to just immediately turn around and cause destruction and terror within the community that it's uh, supposed to protect is a the implications of that are pretty terrifying and uh, Mm. the film illustrates that really well while also like informing the audience that the golem isn't the uh antagonist or the enemy or a monster per se uh it's just um something that exists that can be used for good or bad or can just be you know sitting in the corner doing nothing but that being said my review would likely be about four four out of five stars you know for me it's it's so interesting because for a 1920 film the production design is really really interesting um it's very very detailed it does kind of have a bit of a diy ethos look to it but a really high quality one um a lot of the shot choices and i i know they didn't have nearly as many options as they do today with with more modern technology but a lot of the shot choices are really smartly composed um is very lovingly crafted and it, it it shows that i mean unfortunately we're missing you know uh, two of them although there's a little you know some people report that private collectors have have the prior to but um it's inter- it kind of shows that that the they had a couple um you know a couple tries a little bit of experience with these um these earlier films because they're really, really well thought, well composed. Um, Paul Wagner, the one of the co-directors, um, definitely knew what he was doing. And honestly, I just love it for its for its era. Uh, I wouldn't say that I love it quite to the same degree as I do like Nosferatu um, or um, uh, like Metropolis, but but altogether, I would say it's really stunning what they were able to pull off for 1920 and you can really see it's, it's lineage and so many subsequent films that I got to give it a five out of five um, for that alone. Really. I want to dig a little bit into the 
uh, golem folk, uh, history and, and folklore for a minute. So golems are, um, in, in, in Jewish folklore, these artificial, strong, often large humanoid beings that are made from the earth, from clay, traditionally, and animated using uh, basically mysticism, um, um, ancient magic. And the oldest stories of golems date to, to early Judaism. In, uh, I mean, they're, they're really central conceptually to the story of humanity because in in the Talmud, um, and and as always, I'm going to try and be as accurate with my pronunciation as I can, and I'm almost always probably wrong because I don't speak these languages, but I'm trying real hard. Um, uh, Adam was initially created as a golem. He was like animated earth. And so the, it's an conceptually, it's a, it's a simple slide to being like, okay, if humanity initially comes from animated earth, then we could animate the earth if we had the right, like mystical method and closeness to the divine, you know? And so conceptually, it's a really, really um, organic slide to conceiving of the golem. And if it's, if it's, uh, and, and as always, we're completely neutral on whether or not these things are a thing that you can do or not. And so it, it makes sense for it to be in, in the folklore uh, so, you know, so deeply and so old. In early folklore, golems would often be very loyal to their creators and their creative purposes. Um, they were very strong. They were very steadfast and resilient. But the uh, one of the characteristic um, traditional weaknesses is an inability to speak, which is interesting. During the Middle Ages, there's a, a, a book, the Sethra Yitzira, uh, the Book of Creation, which were... Um, it was studied as a means to sort of create and animate a golem using magical energies, but it seems to not have been really um, pulled per se from Jewish mysticism. It's kind of its own trajectory. The, the belief is that golems could be animated through the ritualistic use of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, um, forming a Shem, any one of the names of God, which would be written on a piece of paper, inserted into the mouth of the golem, uh, or or inscribed on it like on its forehead. And so the oldest depiction of the creation of a golem by a, by a figure that actually lived in history is connected to uh, Rabbi Eliyahu of Kelm, uh, who lived from 1550 to 1583. Um, and... Uh, uh, Polish uh, Kabbalist kind of passed along a narrative that he was able to create an entity out of matter, a golem, and then it performed a lot of like hard labor for him for a long period of time, and then it had its uh, a, a, a sacred name hanging on its neck until it was removed, and then it kind of turned to dust, like Thanos style, and so that's kind of a, a really um, characteristic picture of how golems are said to be animated and operated. There's also uh, the medieval legends kind of retold in the novel Der Golem, uh, which was um, from 1915. 
And then that kind of version of the tale focusing on a rabbi, uh, Judah Lowe, um, then Benzabel or Bezabel, uh, and that kind of got judoed, if you will, into the film that we're doing for today. But it's interesting though, because there's, there's a, a lot of different, um, that's not the, that's one of the earliest passed down, um, real historical figure versions of, of the Golem's mythos, but it's not the only one. There's a lot of historical stories of actual living figures that animated a golem um, and created for defensive purposes, for hard work, for any of a number of, uh, of reasons. Cause, cause golems being magically, it, it, it's not like a uh, Frankenstein's monster in the sense that Frankenstein's monster had his own, he was constructed, but had his own independent individuality. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, golems are basically, uh, you know, mystically programmed, if you will, uh, to do whatever the tasks are that their creator has assigned them to loyally. Um, and so the, the interesting thing for the film is they kind of uh, explore, well, what if that went awry and <laughs> the golem does what it wants? And that's how you get a horror film out of it. Yeah, that's the downside of having a Astaroth give you a secret code. And then he's like, well, I mean, I'm the owner of this code, so I can just override the golem, like, whenever I want. Mm-hmm. Right. So, like, the, it, it's almost like an invisible ticking clock for, like, for the film. Um, yeah. Where, like, you have, you know, you have four good deeds left. <laughs> like, how do you want to use them? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, like, like, like a different version of a djinn. Um Yeah. Yeah. So the funny thing about trusting demons is um, <laughs> you do, don't do it because they have their own agendas. And if you think your agendas align, you're probably wrong. Um, that's just science. <laughs> um, it, it's kind of funny because it, it is kind of like the uh, the way that Google became such a phenomenon, which is they powered so many other sites and technologies and search engines until eventually they became their own solid like you know they gained so much money now they're nearly synonymous with searching because so it's just like they served others purposes for a small period of time yes on this show you're going to find a comparison uh to the golem in the history of google um it's the same logic honestly you just gave it its own power (laughs) now It's kind of interesting to think of it maybe as, I know this is a little bit of a stretch, but that's kind of what we do here sometimes. It's almost like an organic computer um, mm-hmm. having like almost yeah. like a, a, a program um, or the uh, operator is kind of designing the program or. Absolutely. Whatever, you know. No, yeah, I think that's actually um, the best analogy, honestly um to understand it i think that's actually the best one mike um because like they literally do inscribe kind of a code on it in a way um they give it its instructions and it's made out of um you know non-organic materials it literally is Mm -hmm. a mystically animated robot yeah like a in a automaton that has like very very uh, specific and basic programming yet can still be construed by the automaton itself mm-hmm. to mean uh, 
something opposite of the intent. Yeah, yeah, the, the Asimov laws. Yeah. I always have a loophole. It's kind of funny, too, because I'm actually uh, on... I have a two-monitor setup, and on my second monitor, I have it playing because it's, you know, just for inspiration because it, visually it's really cool. And we're at the scene where the... He, he just animated not that long ago and it's like chopping wood and doing like menial tasks. And so we have perfect timing. Just putting that out there that <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, yeah, it's basically like a, a, a mystically animated, uh, different type of like uh, robot, which is kind of incredible, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I, I think it's so interesting, like not to pivot a little bit, but, like the comparison to um, Karloff's monster and the golem here is really fascinating. And I, I feel like it's certainly not uh, coincidental. Like, what do you guys think? Oh, no. I mean, I, I don't think that it's a coincidence, although we'll likely never really know for sure. Like, if Mary Shelley was inspired by the golem to create the wretch from frankenstein or if it was one of those accidental uh, similarities uh, that she wanted to illustrate you know her own version of the miracle of creation told through uh, like the male entity who can't create it naturally that ends up creating like a botched like a wretched creature as it's named in mm-hmm. the book so i don't know if it's if it lines up because it's serendipitous or if there was like an informed inspiration for her to, to draw from the golem. Yeah. I, I feel it's interesting too. Cause I, I, um, I think it's, it, it's kind of, even if it's not, um, you know, we can't for sure say how much direct inspiration she drew or if it was just like in, in the culture and she kind of knew the stories. Um, but it's almost Frankenstein's almost a retelling of the golem story in the era of science because it's, you know, if you kind of work backward, like, well, what if someone, okay, making a humanoid great, got it. But what if they use modern scientific means as, you know, of course the science obviously couldn't just simply do that, um, especially back then. But as a work of science fiction, like what if science could create something? Well, what would that entail? Like you'd have to create it out of pre-existing like humans um, rather than clay because it's scientifically created, not mystically animated. And so it is kind of um, a scientization of the myth in, in a roundabout way. Yeah. And it's interesting because I mean, both tales are basically like, how do you, create life outside of nature um like how do you make something mm-hmm. living without um the usual way <laughs> you know? and um I, so one of the things that i kind of alluded to earlier was um i don't know pretty much i feel like every horror fan knows this but if you didn't um Fun fact, Bela Lugosi was um, originally slated to play the Frankenstein monster. And um, there was some early um, stills or or maybe even some um, footage of Lugosi in a very golem-like makeup, which was originally Mm. what um, 
they kind of thought maybe the uh, monster was going to look like. So, you know, yeah. And it's, it's so weird to think about how we almost didn't get that um, iconic Karloff, um, Jack Pierce kind of um, actor and makeup combined to, to create something literally iconic, but um yeah, it, it very nearly looked very different. Um, well, so again, yeah. I was just going to say that, like, it actually, because, like, looking at it now, it's very interesting because, okay, so visually, Golem in the 1920 film looks more like, if if y'all or the folks at home have seen um, the 1960s Japanese movies, uh, like the Daikaiju films, it looks a little bit more like that, honestly, than it does the universal Frankenstein. However, the walk and the shambling is identical. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting, like what um, elements you can kind of see that still sort of heavily inspired James Wales, Frankenstein. And again, elements that they took from other um, sources, obviously like the novel, um, Shelley's novel, um, but yeah, it, it's it's so mm-hmm. interesting to think about like what could have been, um, but it it further kind of just says how quietly influential this um, film, this nineteen twenty film was. That uh, again, like we said, it's basically one of the first mm-hmm. monster movies, um, and again, kind of a, uh, one of the first superhero movies. Um, I'd even go so far as to say, you know, uh, again, it certainly heavily inspired Superman. Um, it's interesting that you brought up Daikaiju uh, earlier, Jeff, because there's Kaiju is also something that could be construed as like a, um, like a, a, almost like a next step for the idea of the golem, mm-hmm. and in some cases, literally like, like Daikaiju, where he is actually like manufactured. There's one that I revisited uh, just last night, and it's the notoriously directed um north korean film effort known as pulgasari Mm. the titular monster pulgasari is actually crafted out of a ball of rice rather than clay a drop of blood from the uh the creators who happens to be a blacksmith of the town his daughter gets a drop of blood onto the ball of rice and it animates and Mm. she is the one who can tell it what to do and it listens to her and her only uh, and then from Love there, it. it consumes metal, specifically iron, uh, and it keeps growing and growing and growing until it's giant monster size. Uh, and the the militia that's leading an uprising, which is interesting to note that the film was allowed to be made with a, a narrative illustrating the importance of taking arms up and revolting against a corrupt regime and fighting back was allowed to be made for the North Korean film going public and it's it's an interesting way of retelling the golem for uh, a community that has most likely never heard of it before uh, but yeah. like retooling it for the purposes that uh, something that they need to hear that they need to know it's it's almost like an immediacy of um, necessity but mm-hmm. filtered in such a way that it's clever enough to slip through because um during the production of this film uh kim jong-il was he named himself uh executive producer of course uh so he was like <laughs> f- overseeing almost all aspects of production on this thing 
So I'm sure that he had conversations with the director whom he actually kidnapped to make this film for him, a South Korean director. And he allowed him to disagree with him verbally on anything during the making of this film. No one else had that power. So you can imagine, like, talk about, like, you know, skirting the Hayes Code. This is way more risky than that. <laughs> this is <Yeah>. like feigning <laughs> the possibility of getting your head cut off if you just make the wrong choice. I heard some sort of rumor that Toho was tricked into, like, creating a suit for the monster, like a suitmation kind of thing. Okay. Okay. necessarily know the details of that but that's just what i've heard the the story kind of goes exactly where you expect it to uh where the daughter decides that the only way to save her country is by sacrificing herself and telling pulgasari that he needs to crumble into dust in order to maintain the the level of peace for her village it ends on a kind of a dour note but hey it's it's north korean cinema so well, I'm looking at uh, so looking at the IMDb page for King Jong Il. Um, oh, yeah. It's just so uh, interesting that he produced the film, and his prior production credit as a producer was the 1969's. I mean, folks at home, I'm sure you all know this: Sea of Blood. Oh, yeah. Maybe he said. Um, and so he had a long production hiatus, quite frankly, and then to to come out of nowhere. And um, wage war on the local rice industry with Pulgasari. No, that, that guy was responsible for a lot of bangers. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And then he just came out swinging in 1985 to commemorate my turning uh, one the next year. <laughs> it's just so funny that he has an IMDb page. But yeah, in uh, like a little bit of backstory too about that, where like uh, one of Kim Kim Jong Il's favorite movie franchises and. I'll illustrate this by saying that he had a film collection that was like VHS and DVDs that totaled at least uh, about 20,000 titles. He was a huge film fan. Interesting. Um, wow. Some of his favorite like franchises, just like you and me, you know, uh, included like Godzilla, uh, the 007 franchise, which I found pretty funny. Um, wow, that's very interesting. Also, the uh, the films of elizabeth taylor he had all of them <laughs> he was a big liz taylor fan the director that he kidnapped decided to um you know take a look at what his influences were and he latched on to the godzilla aspect he was like oh i can do something here and it turned out to be at least a huge hit for kim but that being said I, i'm glad that this film is able to be accessed by people who are not in north korea right now uh, yeah because it's really an interesting artifact that i think even for people caught in an oppressive regime um, can still find some sort of inspiration out of it, you know? Yeah, and just as an aside, uh, they made a documentary about the um, the filmmakers that were kidnapped, and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm totally blanking on the title, sorry. Um, Which, oh, by the way, uh, its producer, Kim Jong-il, also wrote in 1973, On the Art of the Cinema, a treatise... Uh, that is considered the most authoritative work on North Korean filmmaking. It, it's basically <laughs> his, like, strunk and white elements of style, but for cinema. Yeah, yep. Um, and so, you know, you can, uh, folks at home, you can you can find that. You can put it on your shelf next to, uh, you know, Lumet's Making Movies, you know, all the <laughs> classics um, 
uh, Robert Rodriguez's book. You know, get that filmmaking inspiration in your bones. I was like, oh, it took me so long because I was like, he has a book of film criticism. What is the name of that one? That's that's what it is. Um, I did the work, so you don't have to. Um, but I'm, I'm so yeah. glad, Andre, that you brought it up, though, by the way, because mm-hmm. it does absolutely take some of these themes and then kind of judo it. And it shows how malleable it is because it, uh, you know, makes a kind of a collectivist anti-capitalist manifesto, you know, in, in a, in, in an authoritarian North Korean way. Yes. But, um, it's just so it shows how like really malleable these themes are. Yeah. I don't think you could take the golem myth to, uh, be a tool for, in this case, the North Korean fascists, um, creating golem to further oppress their people or police them and ha- it having the same effect that it would on the other side from the 1920 version like if the christians created the golem to keep the jews out of prague uh like it would just be there wouldn't really be a story there uh, at least the other side might think so but um like there's virtually no struggles on the side of the oppressors there's no need for excessive force on on their side mm-hmm. plus golem it can't be very heavy-handed as a um tool of propaganda if it's all uh one-sided which is something right. i think that they recognize i also think it's interesting too that to adapt it because it's it's so with coming out of cr- clay which is the same way that like adam was in in folklore created by the divine it's so tied in to traditional jewish theology and creation myths that I think it's interesting to adapt the type of story they they had it animated being made out of rice something that's more central to their life and outside of that tradition and I think it's just so interesting how they like kind of judoed it to, to make it their own yeah it's kind of interesting I was uh, while you guys were talking I was also just looking up maybe some recent like film adaptations of this myth there's mm-hmm. apparently a 2018 version that is um well received uh actually it looks like it's on tubi yeah cool if anyone has um yeah because i've never seen it you mind to check it out it's also on amazon prime it's just called the golem and um i think it's interesting it would be really interesting to see like what um like a western take on that could be but still kind of framed by um, Jewish creators as far as how they could reinterpret and, and recontextualize uh, the material or the mythology. Yeah, absolutely. Hollywood, get on it. <laughs> I, I feel like the Sentinels from the X-Men comics almost have that kind of uh, golem-esque feel to them where they they exist to just like squash the, the mutants, the superheroes, and... Uh, it just takes all of their willpower and manpower to like put them down and fight them like i don't know how many times uh i've read like an x-men comic where like the fight with the sentinel takes pretty much the entire issue because they're just so big and strong you know uh Mm -hmm. i don't think that they typically speak i'm not a huge x-men aficionado but that just came to mind or like those giant automaton-esque looking things and they, they look pretty much the same across the board at least in mm-hmm. the, the comic books they come to mind as some sort of um, at least uh, western inspiration purported as a different way of like showing an oppressive force which is something mm-hmm. that i 
just railed against, <laughs> but uh, yeah. is used in in such a way that is uh, actually clever and uh, kind of interesting. That's fascinating. It's so interesting because I'm I'm looking up like films that sort of maybe tie into the golem or have been obviously like used as inspiration, and you know going back to Metropolis uh, by Fritz Lang and. You know, both films were shot by Carl Freund. So, what do you guys think as far as that maybe being sort of a yeah, like the, the robot that that Fro is in love with at a certain point? Yeah, and I mean, it, it's like uh, again, it's this really interesting thing about like how you can maybe see the Golem as sort of a like proto sci-fi film, even with mm-hmm. um, having it being sort of a pre-programmed. Um, even before computers were a thing. Um, And I mean, of course, Metropolis was sort of one of the first huge sci-fi films. Um, So, I mean, probably a little bit of a stretch, but maybe not because you, you, you do have like um, similar Mm -hmm. time period, similar um, like crew at least. So I would argue like similar conditions, especially in, like in Metropolis, yeah. there's there's a point of crisis, except the the robot is being created for sinister purposes. It, it is almost like an argument for, and again, I'm, I'm going to say this again, it, it immediately uh, invalidates what I said earlier about how a, a golem story can be interesting if it's a tool made by the oppressors to further oppress. So I accept that now. Uh, it, it's totally uh, workable because even going from like the... 20s and the early first golem story being made out of clay to Pulgasari where it's made out of rice like why not also like change the element of the the dust or the husk of, mm-hmm. of the being right so uh, in Metropolis it's some kind of metal alloy or something it's not specified yeah yeah it's not super but clear it's it essentially does uh, turn into a, a lifelike form this time it can speak which is a nice twist I think mm-hmm yeah i think it's also interesting too how um in or the the animated uh robotic woman takes on a a human form directly like actually um appears to be fully human in a way that you know for example other adaptations frankenstein never did the golem never does in the 2018 one i need to watch it but it looks like it it actually takes the form of like a just a normal looking human child a human-esque child and so it's interesting that the 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 form changing or not is is very intriguing to me also uh one thing i was thinking of is i was uh i kind of i started to do a little research into the connection between golems and gargoyles because gargoyles are you know animated stone Mm -hmm. that become flesh like fleshy beings and i don't know how much of a direct folklore connection there is there but i do know in the animated series gargoyles in the second season there is an episode called golem where someone makes a stone golem that is combated by max low oh yeah Mm. maybe i'm really just kind of spitballing but the gargoyles could be creatures of astaroth's making maybe like servants or you know Mm -hmm. just harkening back to the image of um the flying monkeys from Wizard of Oz, you know, like some kind of henchman type creature that mm. they're nowhere and they're everywhere. 
uh, kind of attitude, mm-hmm. where maybe like he just needs to speak one of the other words, and they just they all come to life and you know do his bidding or some some stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, another, uh, I, I feel like yeah, that it could have that classic trope of it being um, an underling race, if you will, that's supposed to be subservient. Uh, uh, maybe under the ethos like oh yeah i can animate clay i can animate whatever i want stone got it um <laughs> i love it um and they live on churches which is like just an ultimate fuck you yeah it's kind of reminded me of the um uh that doctor who the weeping angels mm-hmm. um where they they when you look at them they turn to stone but they're actually like alive um maybe it's there like was one also where it was actually kind of a gargoyle like on the church and like they couldn't leave the church. I can't remember the episode, but like there, there was like a winged creature that it was reanimated from being a gargoyle or something on top of like the entrance. Okay. Okay, that's trippy. Yeah. If Luna was here, she would know exactly the episode and like she would have blurted <laughs> it out by now. <laughs> well, okay, uh we'll we'll digitally insert her later. Um, we'll just be like, here's here's some recordings of Luna saying smart things, and we'll just pepper the episode with them. But okay, and then also I guess in um, Dwayne Johnson, aka The Rock's best movie, and folks at home, you are not going to disagree with this. His best movie is still The Scorpion King, obviously. Um, but the uh, the fifth movie it doesn't matter what else he does, doesn't matter. Fast and Furious, I don't care. Scorpion King's where it's at official show policy but the fifth movie book of souls which of course we've all seen 12 times so i'm sorry <laughs> to bring it up again yeah no it's uh, a classic um, franchise i'm always like book of souls gotta see book of souls book of souls why aren't you watching book of souls um the fifth movie in the scorpion king series features a clay golem uh named enkidu um named after the uh character in the epic of gilgamesh uh charged with protecting someone from anyone who would harm her and so obviously that is now our key cinematic portrayal of the golem in popular culture thank you scorpion king franchise for your loving service (laughs) to the folkloric you know reproducing that classic material which i'm sure you drew from smartly yeah they did their research and homework over there at the uh, the scorpion king franchise uh, studio writing room (laughs) so anyway dwayne johnson come on the show he wasn't even in the book of souls but you know also i I, i'm just convinced that dwayne johnson is some sort of advanced golem because he's the rock right so the man doesn't there's gotta be yeah. some uh, and also he he strangely doesn't seem to age past age point, or sleep so, yeah sleeping specifically he has feet, hey right. look <laughs> golems are supposed to be able to do feats of strength he's literally like he could probably lift my house i invite yeah, him to come over like, and try please don't i don't want to have to fix it i would also read as a rejecting vin diesel's appeal as uh, another feat of strength <laughs> yeah. yeah to return to the <laughs> fast and furious franchise which is something like i know it just hurts emotionally but like he's strong enough to do it yeah exactly he rejected that both fastly and furiously yeah <laughs> so in a way he did return to the franchise in our hearts yeah know. <laughs> <laughs> okay okay new pitch new new pitch for the rock he returns to the Fast and Furious franchise as the Scorpion King. Yeah. That's a way to innovate. I know you're going to space. That's fine you're going to space. But what's better than that? Like cars versus monsters. 
Yeah, or or like maybe just a Gollum remake with The Rock. I feel like that sells itself. Yeah, it's just like a biopic. He was like, <laughs> yeah, he was like carved <laughs> out of stone and then became animated by it's money. Just an un- yeah, it's just an unironic look at a day in his life. <laughs> yeah, and like, um, it could still use the same title as the 1920 film. It's like Der Golem or How the Rock Came into Being. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and you know what? It's kind of on us for not noticing because like. He literally went by the rock. You couldn't be more obvious. He tried to make exactly. it a real, like, you know, a real T-ball situation for us. But no, nobody picked up on it until now. And his rise to fame included being in, I don't know the difference between these, but WWE, WWF, like wrestling, which is something where you need to follow the rules to the T. So that's something that golems are notoriously good at mm. yes so that's that mm. raises even more suspicions absolutely correct um you heard it here first folks i feel like we are on to something several somethings maybe <laughs> and, uh, you know golems are also strong enough to operate forges you know without tiring uh, as illustrated in the 1920 film where one of the assistants like he wants to cook something you know over the fire and he tells the golem to like pull the bellows or whatever, but he does it like way too intensely. But he's not using, uh-huh. he's not like holding back at all. Uh, and that that goes back to uh, the rock's infamous phrase: uh, "Do you smell what the rock is cooking?" Which I think is the most telling clue that that he's giving us. It's like he wants to be discovered. Honestly, I feel like <laughs> he's been crying out for, like, I mean, you don't post instagram you know you don't do instagram posts of yourself working out at four in the morning unless you want people to realize you don't need to sleep we need to sing this from the rooftops because he's been crying for it he's been crying out for it um you know uh, I-, I welcome him to come on the show and to talk to us about what it is like to be a hyper strong reanimated um piece of magical technology <laughs> Uh, please don't, please don't punch me when we meet in real life. Um, no, he seems like a nice guy. He seems like a nice guy. He would be welcome on the show, by the way. Um, of course, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we would maybe consider. Yeah, you know, <laughs> like you want to talk about that. You want to talk about some scorpion. He probably never wants to talk about Scorpion King, but um, <laughs> no. I would love to talk about Scorpion King, and it fits the show. You know, um, Jungle Cruise would fit the show technically. Because, spoiler, tune away if you don't want Jungle Cruise spoiled. Um, he plays like a Rhiannon, <laughs> basically like an immortal, cursed conquistador. And we don't know that. Um, and now I spoiled it for you. And yeah, and Jungle Cruise is definitely not the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie. No, the new Pirates, new Caribbean. Definitely is. <laughs> new Pirates, new Caribbean. Um I think when we've been kind of like organically just kind of like um, wandering into the deep dive territory, but are there any other like before it wrap like themes related to the film or the mythos that we haven't talked about that y'all really dig? Well, uh, I had something that was going to bridge over to the, the Superman love it um, inception that also ties into a book written not too long ago here on the West coast of the United States. So like, very western like the west of western it's a book by michael chabin called uh, the adventures of cavalier and clay uh, cavalier is this guy who grew up in prague around there and uh, 
grew up very poor, very um, devoted to his religion. He discovers that he really, really enjoys uh, learning how to like pick locks, all that kind of stuff. So he he trains with someone who teaches him like the art of not only sleight of hand, but uh, escaping from from locks, trunks, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Samuel Clay, they're they're distant relatives. It's like they're cousins or something. Clay lives in New York City around the early 30s. Uh, I think he's in his teens, and he works at a publication. They're losing money. They don't know what to do. Um, they put out not only, like, articles, newspapers and stuff, but, like, Sunday paper funnies, you know, like those three-panel things that... Uh, supposedly lift the hearts of men and women of America. So Cavalier has to do something that he doesn't know exactly what it is, and his master informs him that they need to go to this house in the middle of the night and retrieve something from there, and that he has to use all the uh, the skills that he's learned from him. So they mm. go into the house, pick the locks, and they go into like a, a secret room where there's a coffin and it's never shown or explicitly dived into, but the master tells him that the last remaining golem is inside that coffin and they need to get him out of Prague because it's dangerous for it to continue to be there. Mm-hmm. The entire existence of this golem is really just mostly based on uh, the faith of Cavalier and the faith of the reader that it's truly there. Even if it isn't, it, it represents some sort of a, a beacon of hope, you know, of like religious freedom and everything that comes with mm, that. Mm-hmm. So he, he gets it out of there, but it also means that he can't stay in Prague and he has to leave. So he decides to travel to New York because he has cousins there to, uh, to become an American citizen. So he meets up with his other family, which is Clay, and he gets him a job at the publication. Cavalier single-handedly comes up with an idea that could save the uh, publication offices, and it's a comic book. In this universe of the book, um, Superman exists, and Superman has already been created, so they Mm. have to come up with uh, an alternate character that has the same appeal to people like the public, and they come up with uh, this comic book character named the escapist which is partly based on uh cavalier's upbringing where he's he's basically like a houdini secret agent kind of person highly highly recommend this book golem based superhero antics that sounds like an absolute blast and i would love that Um, i'm looking at the art style too it definitely has like a classic art style which is really sweet Mm -hmm. there's also a set of escapist comics that dark horse put out that are supposedly done very close to the book so yeah. you get some of that like different historical eras that's cool um freaking dig that uh i should check it out yeah i gotta say like, like i i think that this mythology like these mythologies are super cool and we've really gotten to kind of dig into how you can make so many different spins off them and still weirdly they're kind of extreme both golems are very influential and at the same time under adapted in terms of themselves which is kind of incredible to me yeah i was like just looking up like movie adaptations and there's really not a lot um and it's so interesting because it's it's as you said it's so um you know secretly influential on horror and you know even sci-fi and superhero um genres i would love 
to see like a modern retelling from a filmmaker, filmmakers of mm-hmm. the Jewish faith to kind of give that, uh, you know, a voice. Cause I think it's such an interesting um, mm-hmm. concept that's yep. very malleable. If anyone's kind of curious about checking out the 1920 film, uh, as we mentioned, Kino uh, classics has a fantastic looking Blu-ray. It's a beautiful restoration. It really Honestly. is. Um, it's, you know, has a really good uh, commentary track. It is yeah. uh, pretty affordable, but also I looked it up and it is also on Amazon Prime for like a dollar to rent it if you want to actually just watch it like right away um, to get the full gist of kind of what we're talking about. But um, being an old film, it's in the public domain. You'll you know sometimes you'll you'll get maybe some not great looking ones, but like I, yeah, I mean I highly highly recommend. Um, the kino edition yeah i'll say like you know not to tell you to buy things on amazon you can probably find it on other sources and local sources are always better um but uh you can find it for like 16 like half off basically um online like the restored kino edition yeah. and i would definitely it's an old enough film you can also probably find online sources but yeah i would yeah. i would recommend buying the kino because they do such great jobs uh, of lovingly restoring some of these films that would be lost mm-hmm. that i never feel bad about supporting them yeah they, they have a an extensive library of like silence and other like early yep maybe like early talkies and like other otherwise lost yep. um early 1900 silent films uh, which yep. th- it might be up on filmarchive.org if you don't have the bones to, to throw on it yet. But uh, yeah, we, we all, I think, pretty much recommend uh, going for the, the physical version if you can do it. Yeah, I, I, yep. I looked it up. It's like, it's like uh, you said, Jeff, it's like 16 bucks. I mean, it's well worth, um, well worth that. Um, yeah, because also like if... if um... If, if you like uh, German expressionist stuff, and they don't, they're not sponsoring the show or this episode, by the way. Although they should, because we're awesome and we love them. <laughs> um, but they're they're honestly uh, kind of they they really do for for all sorts of earlier silent film traditions, but especially like German uh, expressionism. What Criterion does for like international classic cinema, yeah. where. If, if you've found a good copy of a German expressionist film, it's Kino. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah, more often than not, for sure. Um, yeah, like, um, well, they were talking about this in the commentary track, but I know, like, Lucas was saying that, like, I guess the version um, that they pulled from was a couple different sources. Um, like, there strangely is not one definitive uh, cut of the 1920 um, Gollum film, but mm-hmm. they basically like pieced it together with like the best uh, available material. And yeah, it's it's a stunning looking film. They also I highly recommend um, Nosferatu. They did like a really nice two disc. Nosferatu is gorgeous. Yeah, like that's um, probably I'll echo what Jeff said earlier and say that that is probably one of my favorite early um horror films um like as far as like 20s era um like silent horror films but um you know uh i would imagine well folks who listen to this show as everyone should um are more likely 
I would say, to have at least known about the 1920 film than many other audiences. However, you know, it's weirdly underseen because a lot of people don't, you know, look out for some of these lesser known to us as a, a modern Americans, in, in my case, you know, works of classic cinema. But the interesting thing, though, is you've absolutely seen their influence because kind of like we started out by talking about the German expressionist films influenced film noir. They influenced the universal horror films and the universal horror films and film noir's aesthetics, like both influenced all of subsequent Western horror. And so if you've seen literally any horror movie, any thriller, there's a large degree to which you can trace some of its visual language, some of its conceptual lineage to these movies, you know? And it's it's kind of incredible, really. There's a direct connection with, like, the Gollum from 1920 and Todd Browning's Dracula because of mm-hmm. Carl Freund. And, um, yeah, so it, it's... I feel like any horror fan should check out the old films um, yeah. to really get an idea or understanding of the genre and sort of what shaped of the genre as a whole and absolutely yeah i mean i feel like like these silent films are even really inspiring a lot of modern filmmakers so yeah yeah because i mean you can literally see the influence in the babadook in uh the lighthouse in uh a lot of these you know in in the last decade if it's something that's like really visually stylish and really masterful almost certainly pulling from from some of this background if you do want to get uh, a little taste of german expressionist cinema um the golem is actually a really good place to start um because i love nosferatu i think it's an absolute masterpiece and a must see but it's also a little bit longer you know if you don't know if you love it if you don't know if the style like really speaks to you for for a very specific classic style trajectory i still think it's worth watching it's six stars out of five for me but uh the golem is is a weirdly good place to start too because you have a lot of those visual influences but but as both mike and andre as you both discussed it feels really modern and breezy with its pacing it's only it's a little under 90 minutes it's not that long of a film Mm -hmm. um by modern standards and it you know it's really really easy to get into so so check out the golem um it's a nice little window if you haven't experienced uh german expressionism before um and maybe you'll fall in love with it like we did i will admit i i love all kinds of films from all different eras but i think silent films are a little daunting sometimes i'm still trying to really get into being a lover of silent films but i will say the um the genre stuff specifically horror uh translates i think incredibly well as just a purely visual medium um Mm -hmm. without you know um like dialogue and 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 everything so i guess Mm -hmm. i think that's sort of why i think that if you want to try to get into silent films as a whole that horror films are certainly um one of the best kind of ways to dip your toe in to that. Yeah. I would definitely agree with you on that, Mike, because I think like, I think the two best genres to, to show the promise of silent film 
would be horror because you're right that the visual language really translates well um and uh there's a starkness to it and and uh, and a use of shadow and visual mediums that i think is is really impactful and then i would say like also i'd recommend um and this isn't really subject for this podcast but i'd also recommend there's a lot of silent comedy that really lands um because of the physicality of the comedy for silent Mm -hmm. films like you have like buster keaton you have charlie chaplin you have uh harold lloyd like all masters of physical sight gags and like like choreography that i think still is pretty unmatched these days thinking on like silent film like there wasn't really a a space for just like your catch-all like drama movies like we have today Mm -hmm. because a lot of that's really dependent on dialogue where these movies were creating a visual language so like the likelihood of you seeing something say in like Nosferatu or the Golem or uh, say modern times or something like that those images are likely the first time anyone has ever seen something that conveyed a certain like emotion Mm -hmm. thought expression at least uh, unique to that film and something like that Mm -hmm. uh, really sticks so the, the visual language kind of just sprouts from there as like just how you're watching the golem and you, you witness the genesis of the golem itself. You're also witnessing like the genesis of how to visually interpret that. I would even argue that the, the films, like the actual films themselves, are a golem in the creative sense where like mm-hmm. this is going to sound like super hallmarky, but like the celluloid <laughs> film uh, material itself is the the catalyst for these uh, golems that just come to life whenever you you know turn on the lamp and run the motor and like you know, run the film through it <laughs> so yeah that that's the end of my sappy shit but if anyone feels watching silence is like super daunting i highly recommend checking out like uh, at least the first few episodes of uh, mark cousins fantastic documentary series uh, the story mm-hmm. of film and Odyssey. He he has this way of illustrating exactly what makes these films important, but then also really making you want to seek these out and watch them. Uh, yeah, and he has yeah yeah. I, I just want to add that he also has like uh like the love for the history of film just pours out, and the the gent has so much charisma yeah. that it you really f- get it. You know. Yeah. Um, I love it great recommendation andre uh okay well at that i feel like we uh there's just so much there's so much influence to the folklore is is uh incredible um i think this year will probably this is not going to be our last foray into to jewish folklore um because uh this year because there's uh there's divics there's so many cool things and uh you know we touched a little bit on on um jewish angelology uh so this is definitely not the last we've heard from that tradition because uh, it's uh, awesome because it's awesome and we're going to go back to it, I'm sure. But um, thanks for, for uh, uh, spending some time with us folks at home uh, and, and chatting cool animated clay beings. And um, uh, Mike and Andre, thank you, gents, for co-hosting this really fun episode. Yeah, that was a blast. And, yeah, absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Uh, and where can the folks uh, find you? Andre, how about you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Demoni Disco. Demoni like the Italian demon, Disco like the discotheque. You can also find me on Medium, 
Uh, I do some film reviews over there. Uh, celluloid Consomme is the name. Yeah, celluloidconsomme.medium.com. And if Love you're it. so inclined, I'm on Letterboxd as Hamburger Harry. Check it out. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Um, Mike? Uh, yeah, so you can uh, find me on Twitter at Strange Cinema sixty five. Um, you can also find my book, The Ultimate Guide to Strange Cinema, on Amazon, and I'm also on Letterboxd, uh, Kubrick six double five three two one. Love it. Um, well, hey, uh, you know, thanks again uh, for for stopping by, both of you and folks at home, and uh, uh, all of you listening can find me at Real Jeff Ewing on Twitter, uh, where. Um, you can find all of my latest writings, uh, R-E-E-L, like film reel. And uh, you can find me here. You already did. Have a great day. And uh, keep digging into them creepy creatures in the middle of the night. And look out, Dwayne. Thanks, folks. <laughs> <laughs> We're coming. We're coming for you. Not in a threat way, but in a we love you. Please come on the show yeah. way. Also, we know. <laughs> yeah. We got you. We got you, Steve, Dwayne. Once more, I'd like to extend a special thanks to our guests this episode. And to all of you out there listening, from the dawn of record human civilization, we've been fascinated by monsters and the monstrous. They've inhabited our dreams and nightmares. They've been our protectors and our villains. They've symbolized our fears and vices, our hopes and potential. Fears of creatures and the night that nourishes them were key inspirations and fuel for the rise of human civilization. The need to get out of the shadows, behind the walls, and into the light. In many ways, understanding our monsters is an important part of understanding our world and ourselves. So thank you for taking this journey with us, we humanoids from the deep dive. (laughs) 